Amen. I, I want you to turn in your Bible to Amos chapter 1. We're going to read three verses here. Amos chapter 1, reading from verse 6, or you can listen, verse 6 to verse 8. And we started last Wednesday night on this issue of Israel, what next? A few years ago, we dealt in this church with at least 10 sermons, and we gave them the title Jerusalem and Bible Prophecy. We went in depth to the history, 4,000 year history of Jerusalem and of the nation of Israel, how the land is always associated with the people. And we began in those 10 messages to reveal God's plan, his purpose for Jerusalem, for Israel, for the Jewish people, and that there was a purpose in the past, the present, and the future. I've also written articles, and they're online. You can find them on Russia and Tarshish and these different nations in connection. But I want to go to a message here tonight, and uh, I approach it carefully in awe, uh, but also in trepidation because people's opinions are so red hot surrounding the issue of the Palestinians and the Israelis. People are red hot. They are dogmatic for and against. And you know what? It's, it's hard to be balanced on these issues, but we're going to Scripture. We're staying within Scripture, and that's what we want to deal with here tonight. You know, even from one message last Wednesday, it was amazing how people listen, utterly misunderstand, take a little comment and go in the wrong direction, presuming I believe something I don't. It's amazing even when you convey what you believe, people presume that you believe something else. So I want to be very careful, but I want us to go to Scripture here. And here's our message tonight. God's purpose for Gaza. Gaza is mentioned in the Bible time and time again, and we're going to look at that tonight. <clears throat> Reading from Amos chapter 1, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof, and I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him that holdeth the scepter from Eshkelon. And I will turn mine hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord God. Let's pray here tonight. Father, we do pray that you'd open up your word to us, Father, in a time where emotions and feelings and words and thoughts and actions are running red hot. Father, we pray for your divine mind. We pray as we go to the written scriptures, would you teach us, would you show us, my God, would you help us to have a right heart, a right spirit, a right understanding, nor God, a right message. Father, we ask for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We ask for your divine 
divine wisdom. Lord God, we ask concerning Gaza that you reveal your mind, your plan, your purpose. Lord God, your actions, your dealings in the past, in the present, and in the future. Lord God, we pray for the salvation of every single individual in Gaza. Lord God, we pray for the Hamas terrorists, oh God. Lord God, we pray for those that have anger and bitterness in their hearts, even murder in their hearts. Father, we pray, Lord God, for the people and the land, Lord God, the region, the province of Gaza, Lord God, these ancient cities, oh God, this people, oh God, that have been at the center of conflict for so long. Lord God, we know what your will is. We know what your desire is. Lord God, to extend the hand of mercy, of grace, Lord God, to recover them, to save them. And Father, we do pray tonight as a church that you'd send your gospel to this people. Lord God, that you'd save, oh God, even the most wretched of sinners. Lord God, even the most bloodthirsty of murders. Lord God, that you'd have mercy, oh God, that you'd save them lest they fall into an eternal hell. And Lord God, we do pray for peace in this hour, that you'd be very gracious. And Lord God, we ask of you that you'd teach us how to pray. Lord God, give us a clarity. Lord God, show us above and beyond all other things that you are the God of heavens that you're the God of the Bible, that you're the God of prophecy, nor God, that from ancient days, that you knew all things that would transpire. And oh God, you have warned men, nor God, you have sent your son to die at Calvary, nor God, that any and all might repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ and experience the power of a changed heart and a new life. Father, we ask of you, nor God, give us faith in this hour as your church to walk in all the wisdom and all the knowledge of your word. Open up the Bible, open up ancient prophecies to us that we might understand them in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. My message, God's purpose for Gaza. God's purpose for Gaza. I'm sure you, like me, have watched news report after news report of radical Hamas inhabitants, leaders in Gaza, thoroughbred Palestinians, as they would call themselves, from the very day of this conflict, releasing their own videos. They videoed, they give them evidence. From day one, they're rejoicing. It wasn't Later in the day, from day one, amidst atrocity, the death of children, the burning of innocent people in cars, the massacre of unarmed people. I watched the report of one Jewish father just five miles from the border with Gaza, who, having put his wife and his children in a safe house, in a safe spot, stood at the door outside, and took the bullet shots, shot repeatedly into his body, numbers of bullets, because he desired to protect his wife and his children, I believe eight children. When he was rescued, they had applied tourniquets, and they thought they fought for his life thinking he would die, but having saved his life, now they're fighting that he won't lose members of his body. But that's a man who stood bravely protecting, unarmed, protecting his children and his wife 
The Bible says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for another in defense of another. But yet Christ died for his enemies. He bled for those that hated him and didn't believe in him. I've, I've listened to these reports of a mother getting a video from Hamas showing him the murder, showing her the murder of her own son. I've had to listen to report after report after report, and yet within a couple of days, you saw the nations already beginning to change. We have seen all over the world in cities, in the West, in America, in Britain, in Australia, where on the streets, those who are pro-Palestinian rejoicing, those who rejoiced over the initial attack, then took to the streets to denounce any repercussions on Gaza. You see, in this hour, emotions and opinions are running very high. Even from my uh, message last week, opinions even written on YouTube, they run high. They're radical. You, you don't stand as a bystander in the midst of this, merely having no opinion. You are forced to have some sort of opinion. And so we're going to look here tonight, not at your opinion, not at someone else's opinion, not at my opinion, but we want to go to Scripture and find out, does God say anything about Gaza? Does the Bible speak specifically about Gaza or its inhabitants? As I already said, Gaza is both a city and a land. It's a region. It's a small area of land across the Mediterranean Sea, in between Egypt and Israel, to the southwest of the country of Israel. And there in that small bit of land, 30 miles by 5 miles, resides what we call Gaza Strip. And within the Gaza Strip is the ancient city called Gaza. Historians say this is one of the oldest, most ancient of cities in the entire world. It goes back to the earliest records like Damascus and some other ancient cities. It is one of the foremost, most ancient recorded cities in the entire world. And that's remarkable. And here we have today about 2 million people within the Gaza Strip. 1 million people have already moved out of their houses, been bombed out, forced out, commanded to leave, and now a million of half the population are on the move. They're absolutely on the move. This is a remarkable hour. This isn't just another bombing, another terrorist act, or another conflict. This is a major thing that could escalate to bring Iran in, to bring Lebanon, to bring Russia, to bring the nations of the West, America and Europe and Britain into a conflict that's beyond imagination. One terrorist attack by a terrorist group, blood-curdling, murdering without any mercy. And it could lead to a worldwide global conflict that will affect you and I in our daily life. It's utterly, utterly amazing. Until 1967, Gaza was administered by Egypt to the south. But in the Six-Day War, when many nations attacked Israel, in 1967, 
Israel took over that bit of land, as they did part of Jerusalem, and again possessed Jerusalem as their own possession. From 1992, there was a phased transfer of governmental power and authority back to the Palestinians that they could administer their own affairs and place themselves. And then after the year 2000, the process moved on to begin handing over the, the entirety of the cities and the landmass back to the people. They now govern themselves. And yet they get their water, their fuel, all manners of provision of basic needs without paying for it from where? From Israel. They're under their own authority. They're having billions poured in from Muslim nations. They're having much resource come from Iran. And yet they're one of the most bankrupt nations in the world. They're one of the most depraved and poverty-stricken nations in the world. And yet they're getting billions coming in. And the Hamas is in leadership, a terrorist group. Friends, we need to be very careful what we believe when we begin to look at these things. And I actually believe the only way you can stay clear without being moved by media one way or the other is to go back to Scripture. I've got three points for you here as we come to Scripture to see what does the Bible say about Gaza. Number one, and this will surprise you, that all might be saved. That's my point. God's purpose for Gaza. What's my first point? That all might be saved. Listen to this. Gaza is only mentioned once in our New Testament, where the gospel is, where Christ is, where the power of the Holy Spirit is, where we see the Gentiles getting born again. Gaza is only mentioned once there. Listen to where it is. It's in Acts chapter 8. Whenever Philip goes down to Samaria, remember who Samaria was? It it is one of the adversaries of Israel. They were half-bred mongrels. They were partially Jewish and partially of Ashdod and the other pagan nations. They were a mixed people who followed partially the truth of the Bible in a very limited sense, but they took on all the false worship of the nations. That's what Samaria was. What does God do? God sends Philip, the evangelist, into Samaria. There was great antagonism between Samaria and Israel culturally. But remember, Christ went and preached there to the woman at the well. Do you remember that? No Jew would go into Samaria. No Jew would stop there. No Jew would stop with a single woman. No Jew would especially stop with an immoral woman. What did Jesus do? Jesus went into Samaria. He sat down by a well at the time of the day when moral women don't come out. And he sat by a woman that had broken up probably five marriages and was now living with a man that wasn't her husband. Where did Christ do? Do He sat down. He asked her, give me a drink. Do you realize how far Christ goes to reach out to the untouchable of this world of ours. But more than that, you had Philip the evangelist actually went down and seen a revival in in Samaria, a remarkable move of God, multitudes being saved, healed, delivered of demons, then baptized in the Holy Ghost when Peter and John came down to Samaria. 
But here's a verse, and you've probably missed it. All the times we've ever spoken about Acts chapter 8 and the revival in Samaria, you probably miss Gaza in the story. It says in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, go towards the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Philip, who had turned Samaria upside down, multitudes, thousands born again, an angel speaks to him, gives him a clear command, I want you to arise, leave this revival. I want you to go down to the south. I want you to walk away from all of this that's happening. And you know what? I want you to go down to that road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. He's commanded to get onto a road from Jerusalem to Gaza, moving away from Jerusalem. Listen to me carefully. He's moving away from Jerusalem where revival began, where the gospel commission is given, where Christ sends his church out from. And here's a real evangelist who's already turned Samaria upside down. And he's commanded to get onto this road and to begin journeying down towards Gaza. Do you realize the gospel was sent towards Gaza? A preacher was sent by an angel on the road to Gaza. You know, God has a desire for Gaza right from the word go to receive the gospel. But you know what? Every man, every woman, every family, every nation has a choice to make with the gospel. All the nations of the world had been faced with the opportunity of receiving the gospel. Every family, every nation, every culture, every language. And they either reject it or receive it. Philip the evangelist went and stood on this road, the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. He's out in the middle of the desert and he just stands there. The angel said, stand there. And then here comes a chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch who serves Queen Candace of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is just south of Egypt. It's not present-day Ethiopia. It was a region just south of Egypt. And here's this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's got a scroll opened up before him of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 53, and he's reading it, and he doesn't understand it. And he's there confused going, who is this? Who is this lamb that's afflicted? Who's this one suffering for the iniquity of other men? And you know what the Spirit of God says to Philip? Go and join yourself under that chariot. He jumps up into it and begins to open up. Do you know where they're going? They are on a chariot on their way riding towards Gaza, this ancient city. Can you imagine one of the most remarkable scenes in our New Testament is on a road on a road heading right into the city of Gaza. This is utterly remarkable. But you know, before they get there, Philip doesn't go to Gaza. He stops along the way, baptizes the eunuch in a place where there was water, and the eunuch carries on. Do you know where that eunuch passed through? The last place between Israel and Egypt, when you go through a massive desert, is the city of Gaza in the first century. 
This city was destroyed by Alexander the Great, utterly decimated. But in the year 63 BC, it was rebuilt by a Roman general and brought into the Roman Empire in 63 BC. By the time the Ethiopian eunuch rode down through, it is a bustling city once again, filled with Roman citizens. It is part of the Roman Empire now, rebuilt by Rome itself, by a Roman general. And so it was bustling, it was alive, it was a thriving trade city. When the Ethiopian eunuch made his last stop before riding out into the vast wilderness before his journey home. Wouldn't it be amazing if he stopped in that city and evangelized someone and preached the gospel and shared Christ or handed over Isaiah 53 to someone else? With these things we don't know, we won't know until eternity. But I wanna tell you, I believe it's significant that Gaza is mentioned in the Bible. It's actually only referred to 19 times, and this is the only mention in the New Testament. And what do we have? The opportunity of the gospel coming to this place called Gaza. You see, I believe the gospel is for Hamas. I believe the gospel is for every citizen within the Gaza Strip, within the city of Gaza. I believe Jesus Christ died and bled that every Muslim could find the Lord Jesus Christ. It was some years ago in Wales, I went to a Bible school just outside of Swansea. And I went into that Bible school. And you'll maybe have heard about Reese Howell's The Intercessor, a very famous book. It was a man of God who prayed all through the First World War, all through the Second World War. And when I went to Bible school, I was able to sit down by all these old ladies. They stayed single all their life and had just prayed. They were up into their 80s and 90s. And I was sitting with them and they could remember Reese Howells, the intercessor. And as I sat there, I went into a room with a friend and we sat with Samuel Howells, who was the son of Reese Howells. And we began to talk. And you know what he said? He said, all through the years, we prayed all through the First World War, all through the Second World War. We prayed for the defeat of Nazism. We prayed for a victory over all of those things. He said, then after the fall of Nazism, we began to pray concerning communism. And he said, the Lord gave us the assurance that communism was going to fall. The Berlin Wall was going to fall. We had the full assurance. We have prayed through all of these years and decades. And he says, sitting there with us that day, he says, now the communism has fallen. He says, the burden the Lord has put on us is to pray for the salvation of the Muslim world. And he said, a day is coming when Islam is gonna fall like Nazism did and communism did and the doors will open wide. One last time before Jesus comes that the gospel might be received. It says in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, and this is God speaking. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil way, for I will, for why will ye die? Again in Ezekiel 18, 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, 
saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. God doesn't desire or rejoice in the death of the wicked. I don't care if it's a bloodthirsty terrorist. God does not rejoice in that. He desires that a wicked man turns from his sin, repents, and receives salvation. God doesn't desire the death of any wicked person. Listen again what it says in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3 and 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Anyone who says it's God's plan to ignore or bypass whole sections of our world, cities, nations, or individuals, is greatly mistaken. Anyone who says that God has just chosen to miss out certain populations are absolutely wrong. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's God's plan. He made provision at the cross. He didn't just die for the elect. He died and made provision for all men, all cultures, all nationalities to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen again in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. This is my first point here tonight. What is God's purpose for Gaza? I am fully convinced by the Bible. God's plan, his desire, his will, his longing, his chief desire above all else is that Gaza might be saved, that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn from their wicked ways. But let me tell you what the Bible also teaches. Those who do wickedness will bring judgment on themselves. We're actually told that a person doing wickedness, punishment is visited on that family down to the fourth generation. They'll visit your children and your grandchildren and then down to the next generation. Those that hate God, I mean the truth of God, the gospel of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, men and women who hate the gospel. Do you know what happens to their children? God doesn't say, oh, I won't visit the sins on the next generation. There are consequences. Show me in this city people who hate God and love sin and are, have murder in their hearts. Look at their children carefully. Look at the consequence on their children. They're causing their children to be anger, angry and bitter and jealous. But show me someone in this city that loves Jesus, that walks in the light of his truth. And then look at the blessing that comes on their children and the next generation even down to the fourth generation. Saints of God, it is God's will for Gaza that the gospel goes there with power. I believe all through the ages, for 2,000 years, the gospel has been offered to Gaza before many other nations. It took hundreds of years for the gospel to reach Ireland, but Gaza was right there on the doorstep of revival, of a move of God, of all the apostles, 
This region should have been one of the most blessed. They had all the opportunities of Israel. They had all the great opportunities to, to receive, to see the ministry of Christ and to receive the gospel firsthand. And this is the first thing I want you to see, that all might be saved. God's purpose is to save Islam, to save Muslims, to save Gazites, to save members of Hamas. I know how to pray for them. Lord, save them. But they are going to have a choice. They are going to have a decision. Lord, send them a dream. Send them a gospel. Send them a gospel tract. Let them even come against a Christian or a Jew to kill them and let them discover the gospel in that process like the video that we just showed you here. There's a terrorist, a, 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 a man set towards Islam and yet he finds the Lord Jesus Christ. He is crying out for truth. You know, God help you. Some Christians don't cry out like that man cries out. He sought God with all of his heart and he found the Lord Jesus Christ. My second point here, Gaza revealed in biblical history, not only God's main purpose for Gaza, it's very clear that they might be saved. What's God's plan for you? That you might be saved, washed in the blood, forgiven, that you'd repent, that you'd receive Christ. That is God's will. I know God's plan for you. I know God's heart towards you. I know God's heart towards every single man and woman in this city. I absolutely know it, that they might be born again. There's no doubt about that. For your family members, God wants to save them. Don't be praying and saying, I'm not sure whether it's God's will to save my family or not. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? There's no doubt here. Jesus died and bled and suffered on the cross for sinners. You can't have any doubt. If you're indifferent, you don't share the gospel. You know when you share the gospel? When you're on this high street on Saturdays, preaching, evangelizing, when you're talking to family members, you can authoritatively say, God has provided for you a lamb. Jesus died. God loves you. You can say that with great authority. But point to Gaza revealed in biblical history. You see, this conflict with Gaza and Israel is not a new one. It's been fought now for 4,000 years. It's one of the oldest conflicts in our world, with one of the oldest cities in our world. And you know what? It's never varied. When you go to the Bible, you find that this city of Gaza and this region surrounding it has constantly been a place of hostility towards God, a place of rebellion, a place of rejection of the truth of God. You finally, you, you constantly find this. Now, when you go to Gaza in the Bible, what you find is that names have varied within its borders. The place of its border has changed at times. But do you know what is amazing? that the name Gaza has been there for 4,000 years. Gaza has always been called Gaza, and it's always been a place of hostility towards God's plan and people. Let me give you the history of it here very briefly. You see, this Bible gives the history of every people, past, present, and future. You can go to this Bible and find the only original authentic history of Egypt. 
You also read about Egypt in the Bible in our day and what will happen in the future. You can do the same with Damascus or the, all the great cities of the earth. You can go here and find remarkable things. But we're specifically looking at Gaza here. When you go to the Bible, there are 19 references concerning Gaza. 19 times Gaza is mentioned in 18 different verses. And 18 of those mentions are in the Old Testament. And we want to see what the Bible says. The first mention of Gaza is in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 19. It's very important with the Bible, the law of first mention. If you want to understand God's mind, always look for the first mention of something. Listen to what it says. And the border of the Canaanites. Do you see that? It's going to tell you where the border of the Canaanites were. Who were the first inhabitants of Gaza? The Canaanites, the ancient enemies of Israel. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest out of Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zabon, even unto Lasha. Now, in this verse, what you see is the border of the Canaanites, the people of the Canaanites. They were the original inhabitants, and they called their city Gaza. One of their major marker points to show you the land of the Canaanites was Gaza. It was filled with Canaanites, that ancient people. And you know, within the whole area of ancient Canaan, you have modern Israel, you have Lebanon, and you have the Gaza Strip. All through the time of the judges, they continued to be a major problem. The Canaanites were always a thorn in the flesh of God's people. For many centuries, they were under Egyptian rule. They were, a, they were a grouping of distinct tribes, all called Canaanites, but they were ruled by city-states all within that entire region. And in fact, ancient Egypt records mention about 20 different city-states that ruled the entire region. One of them was Megiddo, the city of Megiddo. But another was Gaza, the city of Gaza. It was a main center of Canaanite power. Now, when you go back into the Bible, we again have that accurate record of the Canaanites. No other book reveals the true history of all nations and of all families of the earth, but the Bible does. And when you go into the Bible, you actually find the ancestry or who gave birth to this people. You see, when you look at the family, Gaza, the people who made up Gaza, the Canaanites originally, have a bad track record from the word go. It was Ham, the son of Noah, who gave birth to Canaan. Canaan is the man who gave birth to a family, who gave birth to the whole region of the Canaanites. And so Gaza came out of the family of the Canaanites. And we know that Ham, the son of Noah, he walked in one night after his father had been drinking wine. He only got drunk once in his life. And when he walked in, his father was uncovered. 
and he come in and he looked on his father. Then he mocked his father. Then he went to his two brothers and made fun and undermined the authority of his father. You know, when Noah recovered from this drunken state, you know what he done? He, he didn't curse Ham. He cursed Canaan, the grandson. Ham's the one who done it, but he cursed Canaan. He actually cursed him. There is a very special curse upon the line of Canaan. And God cursed through Noah this family line. Why didn't he call, curse Ham? It's because God knew it was a prophecy of what's going to come down through this line of the Canaanites. God is prophesying a curse on this family line and what comes out of it. See, in this first mention of Gaza, you have Gaza in connection with Sodom and Gomorrah. Just look who you hang about with. Be very careful of your company, who you spend all your time with, who you make your friends, who are your closest associates. You know, you can judge a man by his friends. We are to be the friends of sinners. We are to evangelize them. We are to reach them out. We don't cut ourselves off from sinners. But I want to tell you, who you make your bosom buddies really reveals an awful lot about you. And so we have in this first ever mention of Gaza, Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know about Sodom and Gomorrah. It was an immoral culture of homosexuality, raging homosexuality that would actually walk the streets at night, gangs of them wanting to rape men. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah was like. So you begin to understand Gaza is associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the exact same culture. They all descend from Canaan, the grandson of Noah. You begin to understand something about Gaza when you see the ancestry and the first inhabitants. Historians and archaeologists tell us a lot about it in this day and hour. They say the religion, when they dig it up, they built mega cities with a big city temple in the middle of it, and they worshipped calved bulls. They made child sacrifice. They were terribly immoral. Do you know what Moses wrote in the law in Leviticus 18? He was writing about, when you go in and possess the land of Canaan, don't associate with them. Don't tolerate their sins. Don't allow their practices to come in. Do you know what he says in Leviticus 18 is about their lack of morality. He mentions in that chapter every form of homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and much more. You can read Leviticus 18 and you see what Canaanite culture was like. It had no morals. It was amoral, no morals. You know what? We are only just getting back to what the Canaanite culture was. It was utterly depraved. They actually, on the hands of Baal and Moloch, they used to put their little baby children in the burning hands of a statue. They would sacrifice their children. You know what God says? The Canaanites are wicked, have nothing to do with them. Sodom and Gomorrah reveals the kind of morality. God sent fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed an entire city, an entire region. Don't tell me God is all love and all forgiveness. 
He desires all to be saved. He gives all the opportunity to repent. He sends his word to all. He offers Christ to all. But you know what? When you see Sodom and Gomorrah, God will have no mercy on wickedness. And he asks his people the same, have nothing to do with these sins. It's absolutely so, so dangerous. You know, with Abraham, Abraham, when he was making covenant with God, he fell into a deep sleep and God made a covenant. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And it was revealed to Abraham, your people are going to go down into Egypt for four generations, four centuries. And then when you're brought back up, you're going to be given the land of Canaan, the land of promise. It's yours, given to you by God. But you know what he actually shows them? You can't go in yet. You can't go there yet. Why? The sin of the Ammonites is not full. In other words, God just says, wait your time. You stay in Egypt. Because you know what? The Canaanites, the Ammonites, all that made up the Canaanite tribes, their wickedness is going to get so bad that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, God's going to go, I'm sending you in and you have to drive out all the inhabitants. They are so wicked. They are so evil. They are so dangerous to their own children. Have nothing whatsoever to do with them. And we know that these Canaanites, some of them were called Jebusites. They resided in the city of Jerusalem. The Jebusites, it was called Jebus at that point. You know who captured it? King David from the Canaanites. He went up, took the city, and made it his city, the city of David. And so we see the Canaanites were the first inhabitants, and Gaza was one of their main cities, an immoral, idolatrous, wicked environment and place. And the Canaanites fought Israel, stood against Israel, attacked Israel. They were always in opposition to Israel. Second of all, you had the Philistines. The Philistines came from the brother of Canaan called Mizoram. You read this in Genesis chapter 10 again. It says there that he had a son called Casalem, out of whom came Philistium. That's the word Philistines, where the Philistines came from. And the Kafirim. Now just sit on that a second. Who are the Philistines? We know they were the ancient enemies of Israel in the land of Canaan. First you had the Canaanites, then came the Philistines. They weren't an original inhabitant. They were not the original uh, dwellers. They actually came in from the outside about the year 1200 BC. Do you know in the Bible three times what is called the Gaza Strip is called Philistia. Three times in our Bible. Philistia is the land of the Philistines or it is the Gaza Strip. It's where you get the city of Gaza. It was the land of the Philistines. You can't make a difference between present-day Gaza and ancient Philistia, the land of the Philistines. It's exactly the same landmass. Listen to this. Amos 9, chapter 7. Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? In other words, where did Israel come from when they went in to possess the land? They come from Egypt. God brought them up. Then listen to the next verse. And the Philistines from Captor. Captor. Where did the Philistines come from? 
just like Israel were brought up out of Egypt, the Philistines were not in Israel. They were brought to the land of Canaan from Captor. Listen again, Jeremiah 47. And the Lord will spoil the Philistines, the remnant of the country of Captor. Blindness is come to Gaza. So their original land was called Captor. And yet they moved to Gaza. Escalon is cut off with the remnant of their valley. Then listen in Deuteronomy 2 and 23, even unto Aza, Aza is another name for Gaza in this verse, even unto Aza, the Kippurims, that's them, which came forth out of Captor. Now I've given you three verses there talking about the Philistines coming from Captor, who then inhabit Gaza. Where was Captor? It's the little island of Crete. These Philistines were not original inhabitants of Canaan. They were part of the sea people that attacked Egypt. And when they were defeated by Ramesses III, we are told in ancient records, Ramesses III took them and planted them in the land of Canaan. If you begin putting things together, it would seem like the Philistines arrived between during the period Israel's walking in the wilderness, the Philistines begin to establish themselves in this region of Gaza. So you can see that this area become a stronghold of the enemy. The Philistines are mentioned 288 times in our Bible. The Philistines, it's mentioned 152 times in the one book of one Samuel. That means during the lifetime of Samuel, of King Saul being king for 40 years, then during the reign of King David for 40 years, the Philistines are dominant all through this period, constantly fighting Israel. What was it? It was Gaza. It was the Gaza Strip. It was Philistia. That entire region we're hearing about the past 10 days attacking Israel. This is an ancient warfare that went on from generation to generation. Do you remember in the day of the judges before the kings arose, how the Philistines were also the enemies of Israel? Israel were small tribes, unorganized, under judges who periodically arose. Listen to what it says in Judges chapter 16. This is the story of Samson, the judge who God raised up. You know, things happened to Samson. Listen very carefully. We are told in the story of Samson, certain things happened to him from the Philistines. The Philistines burnt his wife. Do you remember that? They burnt his wife. They were against him. And it says it was of the Lord to provoke him to attack and slay more Philistines. So God said even allowing the attack on Samson was going to bring more wrath on them, more punishment, more judgment. He was a vessel. Doesn't mean he'd done everything right. He didn't. He didn't. Samson didn't. But you know what? God had him there to punish the Philistines, to actually be a means of destruction. Listen to what it says in Judges 16 and 1. Then went Samson to Gaza and saw there a harlot. He shouldn't have. And went in unto her, 
and it was told the Gadites, saying, Samson has come hither. And they compassed him and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city. Remember the story in Judges 16, three times he lays his head on the very lap of this harlot, Delilah, dangerous thing to do. He's in Gaza. He's an Israelite. He's a man of God. He's a vessel of God. But where does he go? He goes down into Gaza and he's laying his head on an immoral, idolatrous woman's lap. You're in serious trouble. You want to stay separate from the things of this world, I want to tell you. You don't want to get drawn in. Because you know what? That world will bite you badly. You can't make a friend of this world and yet not get burnt. You definitely will. There he is. And three times he goes through the process of her trying to get the secret out of him. Be careful, men. You know, it said with her, she used tears and begging and her sad words. Then the Philistines say, if you don't get the secret out of him, we'll burn you. We'll burn your parents. We'll burn your father's house. All these things go on today. He never should have been in that place. But we read in verse 21, but the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass. And he did grind in the prison house. What a sad thing when you have this great man, Samson, a victim of Gaza. He's now a prisoner in Gaza at the hand of the Philistines in Philistia. This is the ancient Gaza Strip. Let me give you another group that are mentioned of enemies that made this their base. They're called the Anakims. In Joshua chapter 11, verse 22, Joshua, the general commissioned by Moses, the general of Israel, to go in and possess the entire land. He defeated Jericho, then went through the land, defeating city after city, army after army, nation after nation, tribe after tribe. He was an amazing general. But listen what it says in Joshua eleven twenty two. There was none of the Anakims. Okay, so it's going to tell you there was none of the Anakims. What are Anakims? They are giants. It says in Numbers chapter 13, 33, and there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak are Anakims. That's where Anakims come from the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so they were in our sight. They're Nephilim. These are the giants that Israel fought. What does it say? There were none of the Anakims left. In other words, as Joshua moved through, he is destroying all the places where the giants are killing the giants. Remember later, Goliath comes out of them. If he's destroying them all, killing them all in the land of Canaan and moving through, how come there's a Goliath? It's because someone didn't finish the job. Listen carefully. Only in Gaza, in Gath and in Ashdod, there remained any of the Anakims. So in other words, right through the entire land of Canaan, Joshua killed all of the giants apart from three cities. And this become the Philistine strongholds. 
Gaza is one of the places where the Anakims were. So you've got the Canaanites, you've got the Philistines, now you've got the Anakims. You've got the giants who are going to give birth to Goliath a little bit later on. So Joshua failed to inherit the whole land. He was the greatest military leader, yet he did not conquer Gaza. Gaza became a thorn in his flesh. Gaza became a place of giants, of Philistines, of attack against them. And you know what? They're going to perpetually be a thorn in the side of Israel. They're going to attack Israel time after time after time. Remember that message, the Valley of the Giants? And I said there were five separate routes of how the giants would come through, valleys. The Philistines would attack. All Philistines are not giants, but the giants came to reside amongst the Philistines because Joshua did not finish the job. Some of the tribes, Judah, wouldn't finish the job. Do you know what happens in the church when we don't cast out, when we don't pull down strongholds, when we don't get rid of things? Things will affect the generation to come. That's why the church is in such a mess. Because people in the church who knew the word of God said, we can leave that alone and we don't need to deal with that. And it doesn't matter if that's in your life. And there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. And sure, that's okay. And suddenly you've got confusion. Let me go to my third and final part here. Gaza revealed in future prophecy. It may surprise you that In the days of the prophets, they prophesied about Gaza, and it was never good, apart from one or two incidents. They preached judgment, wrath, things that were going to happen. Let me take you to one prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, which is a remarkable prophecy that mentions Gaza once again. This is in the days of Zechariah several hundred years before Christ, and he gives a prophecy that is going to come to pass. When you go to the book of Zechariah, chapter 9 to chapter 14, it is in the context of the coming Messiah. Remember, this is hundreds of years before Christ, and his entire book is remarkable, but he gives this prophecy, chapter 9 to 14. Hold that in your mind. It's all, all those chapters are about the coming Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has given a prophecy of this Messiah who's going to come. First of all, these chapters cover his first coming, then his second coming. And these chapters contain two burdens that are given to Zechariah. The first one begins in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1. The burden of the Lord came unto me. The second one begins in chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the Lord comes again. What's a burden? A word, a prophecy, a revelation. God's revealing something to him. Two distinct prophecies in these chapters. Two separate burdens. The first one is about the first coming of the Messiah. The second burden is about the second coming of Messiah. And Gaza is mentioned in this context, which is utterly remarkable. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 9, these few verses describe an attack on the nation. And it names various cities, various nations. It mentions Lebanon, 
It mentions Gaza. It mentions Israel. It hasn't happened in Zechariah's day. He is prophesying about an army that's going to march into the land. He gives cities. He gives nations. He gives things that are going to happen to them. And do you know what he actually says in verse 13? He begins to show you who the army is. And there's only one other book in the Bible that really mentions this army, and that's the book of Daniel. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13, when I have been, when I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow of Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as a sword of a mighty man. Do you know what this reveals is the Grecians are going to come into the land of Israel. It only ever happened once in history. It was Alexander the Great who God raised up. He marched all through Turkey, conquering nations. He then stood against, he was only a young man of 30 years old. God had raised him up as the first king of Persia, an inexperienced new army. And he stands against the great Persian army of one million soldiers. Guess who won? Alexander the Great. Then he marches into Egypt and another great nation of warriors. He defeats them. But we are given a specific prophecy here of the Grecians moving into the land of Israel. And if you know your history well enough, he gets to the gates of Jerusalem and he's going to destroy them. And here comes the high priest with the priests marching out with the Ark of the Covenant. And he gets off his horse and walks towards it. They were coming to destroy the city. And one of his generals said, why didn't you destroy him? He says, when I was up there in Turkey, I had a dream. And I saw this high priest walking out. And I seen them all just like they are. And I was not to touch them. Alexander the Great experienced that. And you know what we're told in the history books by Josephus? He was taken in and the high priest showed him the prophecy about him in the book of Daniel. That the first king of Greece, you would be him. That you would defeat Persia that you'd be raised up of God. It's extraordinary. But you know what? That isn't all that's in this prophecy. In these verses, it also mentions Gaza and the cities of what is today, the Gaza Strip. Listen carefully, verse 5. Eshkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. Ekron for her expectation shall be ashamed, and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Eshkelon shall not be inhabited. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. You know what it's saying here? Alexander the Great is going to defeat and destroy Gaza. Guess what happened in our history books? He defeated Gaza. This was a prophecy about Gaza and the surrounding cities and the land of the Philistines that Alexander Great raised up in the book of Daniel was going to destroy these cities and he was going to decimate these soldiers and these armies. You know what happened? It happened, saints of God. This was a prophecy, an accurate prophecy about Gaza that came to pass. But let me take you a bit further. That's the first coming of Jesus. Why would God write this for the Jews, for the land of Israel? Why did he give this prophecy about Alexander the Great marching in and destroying Gaza? 
You know why? Connected to this prophecy is a prophecy about the coming Messiah of him riding into Jerusalem. How will your Messiah come riding on the back of an ass, of a donkey? He's going to come riding into your city. Do you know what this was proof of? I'm going to destroy Gaza to show you that my Messiah is going to come riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. See, God always gives prophecies to confirm prophecies. If this is true, then this is going to be true. Israel should have known in that day. We know 300 years ago, Gaza was destroyed by a Grecian. Therefore, that means we ought to be looking out for the Messiah to ride in meekly. Our king is going to come riding on the back of a donkey into our very midst. That's the first coming. What about the second coming? You find that beginning in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, and I want you to see this. This is all in the context, the building to the coming of Messiah the second time. Do you see what happened the first time? Gaza was destroyed. The nations of that area were destroyed. Do you see now we suddenly move to the second coming? Christ is going to come in Zechariah chapter 14. But he gives us the lead in, the years that lead in to the second coming of Christ at the Mount of Olives when he's going to put his feet on the mountain. And in chapter 12 here, and in chapter 13, and in chapter 14, he shows us the lead in to what happens. Here in chapter 12 of Zechariah, and I believe it's where we are right now. Listen carefully. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people round about. This is a prophecy, not for, for 2,000 years ago, but for that time leading into the second coming, that Jerusalem's going to be inhabited again, that the city of Jerusalem is going to become a cup of trembling to every other nation that is in around her. That includes Gaza. That includes Lebanon. That includes Syria. That includes Egypt. That includes Jordan. And so God says, I am going to make her a cup of trembling. The word trembling here means reeling, intoxication, to be drunken where you can't walk straight. What's he saying? Jerusalem is going to be a cup. If you drink of it, if you interfere with her, if you interact with her, if you attack her, you're going to be reeling out of this as an entire nation. You will become drunk because you've attacked this city. And so we have a clear prophecy before Jesus arrives. This is 2,600 years ago, this prophecy. Before Jesus, Messiah, comes and stands on Mount Olivia, that Jerusalem is suddenly going to rise in our world and become a cup of trembling. And when they shall, don't say if, it says, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. In other words, there's a time, and there's various times that they come under siege, under attack. Jerusalem and Judea, or Israel, comes under attack. And you know what? They're going to become a cup of trembling. You attack Israel, you're going to get drunk. 
you're going to be intoxicated. You won't even be able to walk straight if you do this. But it goes further, verse 3. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. Now it's not just the nations and around her. It's talking about the same time, our day before Jesus comes back. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. In other words, all nations of the world. Israel is going to be a burden. It's a small, tiny nation of several million people. A small, tiny country, a third of the size of Ireland. Can you believe that? Only double the size in population. And yet it's going to be like a heavy, burdensome stone around the neck of all nations worldwide. This is a prophecy about the leading to the second coming of Jesus. And we're told in chapter 12 how we see Israel and Jerusalem, a place under attack. It's constantly under attack. And then verse 6, In that day will I make the governors of Judah, the leaders, like a hearth of fire, a fireplace among the wood. And like a torch of fire in a sheaf, and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. This is a remarkable prophecy concerning the lead into the last days. And I believe it goes on to talk about Ezekiel's war and the revival in at the end of chapter 13, beginning of 14, it talks about a revival where the Spirit of God is outpoured in Jerusalem. It's never happened. It happens at the end of Ezekiel's war. And then that's going to lead into a time of horrendous opposition for Israel, where it seems like they're almost going to be defeated. And then was it saying in chapter 14, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of them. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and the half of the city shall go into captivity and the residue of the people shall be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle and his feet shall stand on, the, on that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem in the east. I believe Zechariah chapter 9, sorry, Zechariah chapter 12, in the period we're talking about, it will include all the nations and all the cities that are mentioned in chapter 9 that were affected before the first coming of Jesus. I actually believe that Gaza will play its part in this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12, and being one of those nations, one of those peoples that are going to reel under their attacks with Israel. You've got two minutes, and that's basically impossible. I want to finish with one last prophecy, and I'll try to be brief, because there's one last prophecy about Gaza in the Bible, and it's not negative, and it's not about judgment, and it's not about attacking Israel. It's radically different. But you know what? It's a different time. It's after Messiah comes. It's after the Lord Jesus comes back again. Listen, it's in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. 
And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall go forth out of his roots. This is a prophecy about Jesus, the first coming of the Messiah. It talks about the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him, and he won't judge according to his eyes or his ears. This is a prophecy about his first coming, but it quickly moves to the second coming. Just listen as I read this. He goes further because it says, this one, the branch of Jesse, sorry, the stem of Jesse, of the branch out of the roots of Jesse, that's the house of David. That's out of Judah. That's out of Israel. It's talking about Jesus being born of the house of David. But do you know what? It says something about him that's never come to pass yet. He will smite the earth. With a, with a rod of his mouth. It's never happened. It happens during the millennium. When Jesus returns physically and visibly and literally to the Mount of Olives, he is going to smite the nations with a rod of iron. And so here in Isaiah 11, suddenly you get a prophecy about his first coming with the Spirit of God upon him to minister to all people in the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw that. But when he comes back the second time, It'll be with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Do you know over in 2 Thessalonians, it says when Jesus comes back again and the wicked one, the Antichrist is reigning on the earth, he will slay the wicked one with the breath of his mouth. He will destroy him. So Isaiah 11, it moves from the first coming, the anointing of Jesus to the second coming where he's going to destroy with the power of his word. Then listen to what happens. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. It's talking about the millennium. Zechariah 14, when Christ comes to reign on the earth, perfect peace, animals are going to lie down in peace together. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. All nature changes. The economy is going to change. The ecosystem is going to change. Everything is going to change. Righteousness will rule. Peace will come. There will be abundance for all. Nobody will be starving. Every single answer is going to be answered. And you have a few prophecies about this. And I, I, I don't want to go too much into this or we'll be here all night. Then it says... And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you see what hour this is? It's a time where the Messiah, the anointed Messiah, comes back and rules in righteousness. And the knowledge of God covers the entire earth. The absolute manifest revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then listen to what it says in verse 10. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. My homework for you tonight is before you go to bed, read this chapter, because I'm not going to go through it all here. But listen, it begins to talk about nations and cities and peoples, what they shall do. This is my verse here. Verse 14. But they shall fly, talking about Israel. Israel's going to be regathered again at the beginning of the millennium. Peace is going to come. 
all the enemies of Israel and Jerusalem are going to stop. But listen to what it prophesies. But they shall fly upon the shoulders. In other words, they are going to come at great speed returning to the land of Israel on the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west. The Philistines are going to be there in the millennium. This is the last prophecy. They, they shall spoil them of the east together, and they shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon. And you can read in this chapter how various enemies and even inside trouble in Israel, all of it's going to stop to re-establish the nation of Israel after all that Antichrist has done. And one of the groups helping them is the Philistines. And what a verse to say, is Israelites are going to return to the land on the shoulders of the Philistines. They are going to fly back. The Philistines are going to fly them back into the land. Do you know what this speaks of? Of great haste, great speed, great urgency. And I believe when we enter the millennium, there's going to be those that call themselves Philistines of the land of Gaza, of the city of Gaza, who are going to be at the forefront of saying, we want to bring restoration. We want to be a part of the recovery. We want to be involved in restoring Israel to her land. We want to help her people to be back in the land. We want to help establish her to be united under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we shall reign in righteousness. Will you stand with me here as we close? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, we bless you. We praise you for the clarity of your word. We started, oh God, with saying it's your desire to save, nor God, those in Gaza, those in Hamas, nor God, those that have been bound by Islam, and nor God, we're finishing with a day and an hour, nor God, when Christ comes to reign upon the earth, that the Philistines are going to rise up. Lord God, to restore them, to be used in your hand. Lord God, to bring them back swiftly to the nation. Lord God, we're asking of you that you would save souls in the midst of this crisis. Lord God, this million people are being moved, Lord God, from their nation. We're asking of you, send salvation. Have mercy, O oh God, snatch people, Lord God, who are going to actually serve you in the hour of the millennium. Lord God, save people and wash them in the blood of the Lamb now. And Lord God, we do ask of you, reveal your divine purpose. Lord God, we're asking of you that you would preserve Israel as a nation, that you'd make her, oh God, to be a burdensome stone. You prophesied that she'd be a cup of trembling to all those surrounding nations that would dare to mess with her or attack her. Lord God, your word is true. And Lord God, we're not taking sides politically or nationally. Lord God, we just know what the Word of God says and what is about to happen in our day and generation. Open our eyes to see our God is the God of history. Our God is the God of Bible prophecy. And our God is a sovereign God who moves the nations, nor God that will even use wickedness to fulfill His plans and His purpose. And Father, all that Gaza has done, nor God starting this attack, nor God will you withhold nations, nor God will you raise up peoples, will you bring your plan and your purpose to bear in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.